Hello, welcome to The Echidna, ACM's sharp and close to the ground podcast. After the election earthquake. One of the big messages was, don't mess with women. And what advice for the Labour government? If I were giving advice to Albanese, I would say, govern as if you were a minority government. All coming up in The Echidna, with me, Alex Crow, and Steve Evans. If the election showed us anything, it was don't ignore women. Scott Morrison's government paid the price in several affluent metropolitan seats this election when teal independents, predominantly female candidates, triumphed at the expense of the Liberals. I asked Professor Chris Wallace of the University of Canberra if the Liberals could have expected it. I don't think any Liberal even vaguely expected a result like we had on the weekend, where essentially all of the affluent traditional Blue Ribbon Liberal seats from the metropolitan areas of Australia pretty much decamped to the Teal independence in very, very dramatic fashion and probably with long-run consequences for the Liberal Party. So one of the big messages was don't mess with women. Critical ones from the Liberal Party's point of view in terms of seats were those traditional affluent white middle-class professional women who you know, a couple of generations ago would have been derisively referred to as the doctor's wives. Well, you know, in the interim, they've become the actual doctors in droves <laughs> and uh, several of them have actually gone and pinched blue ribbon liberal seats. So, you know, that's a really big turnaround. And I think the Liberal Party is going to struggle to get to grips with what just happened to it, especially because there are so few women in their ranks. There has been pressure on the Liberals in the past to introduce a quota. Do you think we're likely to see that? It's a really obvious move for the Liberals to make. They've actually been dragging Australia down in the world gender rankings because of the declining proportion of women in their party room. That's how significant a a factor it is in our national life. And if they want to form government in the future, they're going to have to move the party more to the centre of Australian politics And to do that, you've got to look more like Australia actually looks today. And, you know, there are women, there are people of colour, there are Indigenous Australians. They're not showing up very much in the coalition party room previously and now even less so. If the Liberal Party wants to avoid going the way of the dodo, uh, it really needs to sort itself out. And quotas, even though philosophically it's anathema to the Liberal Party, They work. They're the thing that works. It's what Labor used to fix its man problem when it, a couple of decades ago, moved to quotas for winnable seats. And now, of course, in the Labor Party room in in federal politics, half of the the lower house members and senators are women. You know, they've been normalised in Australian Labor politics through quotas. The coalition can either choose to become more like Australia and uh, put themselves more in the way of a possible electoral victory again down the track or not. So it's a, it's a pretty pivotal moment for the party and, and uh, one of the expressions of you know, which way they might be headed in that respect will be seen in the leadership vote. Everyone's assuming Peter Dutton will be elected, but you know if you really wanted to make the Liberal Party a more relevant entity, you'd probably go to uh, Queensland engineer Karen Andrews instead. Uh, not least because it's usually women we know traditionally in politics who are brought in to clean up dire messes like this. And what about 
Labor in all this. I mean, the primary vote is the lowest it's been in, you know, since 1972. It's been on a gradual decline. Have they made similar mistakes in regards to women in seats that could have been won? Good question. I think there were a couple of opportunities it missed. I think Ryan, the Brisbane seat, which a Greens woman won, was a case where if Labor had been a bit more ambitious in its, its targets and put itself in a position to win Ryan with a really strong candidate, or if the Teals had put a Teal-style candidate in there, possibly they would have got that seat instead of the Greens candidate. So, yep, maybe a few missed opportunities there, but overall Labor has benefited from the Australian electorate voting very cleverly, tactically, to take seats off the government that Labor could never hope to get. You know, it's not like a Labor candidate could ever win Kuyong, for example. By not getting in the way of Teal candidates winning those safe Liberal seats off the coalition, Labor helped itself form government. This could well be the kind of breaking of LNP dominance that we've seen over the last generation plus. Uh, The coalition's been in power federally for 19 of the last 25 years. Between Labor and its pretty effective campaign and the teal attack on those safe Liberal seats that Labor itself could never have a chance of winning, this could be a a significant historic break in in patterns of voting, one that very much disadvantages the coalition. With all of these women independents now on, on our televisions and standing up in our parliament for the next few years, is this a wave that is just going to continue? And can we expect, you know, young women to think, oh, well, this is an ambition that I can pursue now? I really hope so. Many people have been deterred by the stories of bad behaviour and bad treatment. To the extent that the the win that Labor had on the weekend, plus the extraordinary platoon of teal independents arriving, women in droves, I think Parliament itself is going to change. We're probably, with luck, going to see a more collaborative and sensible policy debate instead of the kind of buffed combat politics we've been used to in the last couple of decades. And that holds great hope for better policy, better outcomes. And I think at the heart of it, you're going to see a drive for a restoration of much better integrity standards in federal politics, of which uh, accountability for the treatment of women inside and outside parliament is a factor. Professor Chris Wallace of the University of Canberra. So where now for the Liberals? Our own Dan Jervis-Bardi travelled with Scott Morrison. And I asked Dan if he got the sense that Mr Morrison was nervous right at the end. You certainly didn't get the sense that he was nervous. You didn't get the sense that he was staring down their mortality. To give one anecdote of, of just how relaxed he seemed, so on the, on the Monday before the election, Scott Morrison was in Cairns. That night he had a, a pre-recorded interview with ABC's 7.30 program with Lee Sales. Now it's, it's widely regarded as the toughest interview in Australian politics. Lee Sales is, she goes pretty hard. There's, there's no softball questions with her. Now, so Scott Morrison has a, an interview with her. I think it was pre-recorded about 5.15 in the afternoon. This is five days out from an election, a huge interview. At 4.45, he was at the, the Cairns and Districts Darts Association throwing darts with the local MP, Warren Inch. Perhaps it's the way that he relaxes. Perhaps it's he's, he's able to 
compartmentalise things in his life where he could throw the darts, put back his jacket on, drive to the studio and then go have the toughest interview in Australian politics is, I found, quite remarkable. And I think it said a, a fair bit about the type of person and politician that he was. Dan, the Liberals really have a choice now, don't they? Do they swing to the left and appeal to those voters who have turned away from them or do they lock in and go harder to the right? I'm going to give you the third option. (laughs) They go down the centre because that is where Australian elections are won. There's a situation now where if you are a somebody who believes in who lives in an inner city, who believes in free enterprise, who's a little bit cautious of big government, who's a little bit cautious about the role of unions perhaps, but is concerned about climate change, wants to see more gender diversity in politics but also in the rest of society and worries about integrity, you can make an argument that there is no party for you. So the Liberals need to move back to the centre because they are fundamentally centrist ideas. It's not radical at this day and age, to take action on climate change. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a moderate, it's a central view. Let me give you another scenario, though, which is that the politics of the right in Australia and in Britain and in the US is, is kind of hermetically sealed. They have their own ideology, and they might think, we're going to the right because that's what we believe in. Albanese's honeymoon ain't going to last with the economy. We're going to win anyway Mm. in three years' time. Why trim? It's a good argument, and I think the best thing that an opposition can do now is sit back, assess, look at the way that Anthony Albanese is sort of manages the next little while, talk and listen to people. But there is a, a really good argument that if they try and... I guess, go closer to Labor, that point of differentiation doesn't exist. But the biggest mistake that the Liberals can make now and the Coalition can make now is if they confuse their membership, so the people who are signed up members of the Liberals or the Liberals and Nationals, if they confuse them with their quote-unquote base. The membership of political parties at the moment is so low and the people that join them tend to be I guess, a little bit more extreme in their views. They're they're more ideologues than the average person. What we've seen in certain parts of the countries, I think Victoria is a good example of this, is where the party has confused what the membership wants. So people who are going further to the right, for instance, confusing that with this idea of a base. So who are your core voters? And if you confuse what your membership wants with who you're the general people who believe in liberal values, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. So that's where, and it's it's difficult to do because these local MPs after the election will go back to their, their local branches, they'll front up with the members, the people that pay to be people in the party, and they'll, they'll have certain views. I'm, I'm absolutely certain in places like Queensland, for instance, They'll go to their local branch meetings and the branch members will say, we need to go further to the right. It would be a mistake for to take that message and believe that is representative of what liberal, quote-unquote liberal people believe around the country. Dan Jervis-Barty, thanks for speaking to us. It's my pleasure. So what of Labour? Clearly there was a shift leftwards 
particularly if you believe that wanting more robust action on climate change is a left-wing issue. But is that a permanent shift? Has something fundamental happened? I asked one of Australia's leading historians, Professor Frank Bongiorno of the ANU, if this election was a leftward swing only to be followed by a rightward swing in three years' time. It could be. I mean, you know, th- these things happen in, in cycles and seesaws and, and uh, we'll have to wait and see. One argument that's been put is the way we govern these days, the way government happens, is that political capital and goodwill is burnt up very quickly, that political leaders become unpopular very quickly and that could well be the problem or a problem for... The Albanese government, I mean, faces a lot of difficulties. It's already talking about the budget cuts it's going to have to make, budget repair. It faces a massive debt coming out of the pandemic, structural deficits, uh, probably for the lifetimes of many of us sitting here. <laughs> That's clearly going to be a major constraint on on what it can do. It, it'll also face quite hostile media environment too. I mean, we, we've seen that, I think, with News Corp and the Murdoch media during this election, and I think that will be quite relentless. Except that this time all that gotcha stuff didn't wash. The voters didn't buy it. Well, they certainly didn't buy it to the extent of they uh, have returned uh, teal independent candidates and there was a fierce campaign, particularly by the Australian against them, but more generally by the Murdoch press. And of course, they've switched governments. So to that extent, it, it sort of exposed the naked emperor in some ways, but it'll be back to work. That will be a difficult environment for the government to negotiate. It'll need to have incredibly sophisticated communication strategies. It'll certainly need to avoid what uh, Kevin Rudd attempted, which was to try to win the media every day, you know, to treat every 24 hours as if it was another media contest in which you had to come out on top. And that failed, and it will fail again if they try that. My sense is that a good strategy would actually be, to some extent, to keep attention on the previous government. And all the signs are that the new government actually understands that. They've called royal commissions and inquiries. There'll be an ICAC established, I would imagine, quite early. I think it's very important for that narrative also to be run, that the government needs to point to deficiencies of its predecessor while it goes about running the country. And were you to advise the Liberals, would you say the left has done well, so you need to trim left or stick with it? Yeah, I mean, the argument they need to go further right strikes me as extraordinary, really. It's obviously based on, you know, some sort of precedent that they see from the United States and Trumpism that somehow you can just keep going further right and there'll be some mysterious constituency out there that will vote for you. But this just seems to me to be unrealistic and particularly I think in an Australian system where we we have compulsory voting where governments simply don't get elected by going to voters and displaying extremism. I mean the notion that they should push further right just strikes me as as a kind of death wish at the moment really but they'll take time to regroup and reform and there'll be a lot of, I imagine, a lot of internal conflict. How difficult is it going to be for Labor to get their policy through? Labor will have to uh, negotiate over its legislation, regardless really of what happens in the lower house. And look, I think the size of the lower house crossbench though has other implications. Um, When you've got a crossbench of that size, when you've got a movement with the momentum of the Teals, when you've got the Greens picking up, you know, several more seats in metropolitan areas with surely the potential for further gains at, at future elections, that's something that the major parties can't ignore I mean, if I were giving advice to Albanese, I would say 
govern as if you were a minority government because the reality is that they will be thinking in terms of another term and it may be that they need their support next time. But just more generally, they can't afford to ignore the constituencies, the people who have supported Teal Independence and Greens and, and he would be very aware of that, I think. Professor Frank Bongiorno. And thank you for listening to The Echidna, ACN's sharp and close to the ground podcast. 